0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Politics on Draft with me, James Tabor
1: and me, Kartik Sawney.
0: Join us as we go through the political news of the world and try to make sense of everything that's going on.
1: Each week we'll talk about current affairs, political topics and offer some insight, research and opinions along the way.
0: We'll also be bringing on some special guests with interesting stories and their experience of politics.
1: So whether you're a massive politics nerd or someone who simply wants to know more you're very welcome to join us every Friday from 8am just in time for your morning
0: commute. So get comfortable, get a drink and remember the best politics is always on draft. Hello how are you Kartik? I'm good James how are you? Yeah no I'm not doing too bad I'm a bit sad because of the Arsenal match Uh, we just lost 3-1 against Man City in a tragic match but hopefully this can pick me up a little bit. Kartik as we do every week what are you drinking?
1: Uh, Well I'm just sticking to a coffee, even though it's 9pm. Uh, I presume yeah. you're drinking uh, a mug full of your tears. Uh, yeah. You just lost the match. But what are you drinking, James? I swear you told me
0: you're literally an Arsenal fan, <laughs> if you had to choose.
1: I'm, I'm a Crystal Palace fan. You're a
0: Palace oh, dear. Okay. Well, yeah, right? um, no, I was drinking red wine, but uh, now I've, I don't deserve anything for being an Arsenal fan, honestly. Just... <laughs> By the way,
1: the term fan is very lightly used. I'm Overall, not that interested in football, but if you ever see me standing as an MP, I'm, football is going to be the main part of my life because that's what
0: MPs do. Absolutely. So I'm
1: yes.
0: do represent Karthik, <laughs> represent. Uh, so let's, we got two things to talk about quickly, and that's um, going to be Jeremy Corbyn and... Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon two big announcements. We were going to talk about Jeremy Corbyn anyway and talk about his recent interview with the news agents, but it just so conveniently happened. Thank you very much, Keir Starmer, that he's not going to stand as a Labour MP or candidate, should I say, in the twenty twenty four election. Um, obviously, all provisional because you know we'll have to wait until the election for that to properly be entrenched. Kartik. Weigh in for me, please.
1: Yeah, so this was the EHRC's re- report, basically clearing the Labour Party of anti-Semitism, now considering the measures that Keir has put in place. Great, that's what we want to see, and Keir received a lot of praise for that. Um, there was also an interesting side mention, You know, uh, a suspended MP called Rupert Huck. Uh, she mm. weighed in... Uh, a suspended MP, by the way, who still thinks of herself as a Labour MP. She still sits on the Labour benches. She weighed
0: went. For context, she was the one who said that Kit quasi Quartering was superficially black. Continue. Let's out. not
1: repeat that. <laughs> Let's not repeat that on the podcast. But anyway, yes, she was suspended uh, during conference season last year. And she, she waited and said, you know, this is spot on. Well done, Keir. This is exactly what we need. But then Keir Snummer also uh, decided to spell out within that same speech with and say, Jeremy Corbyn will not stand as a Labour candidate. And now he's received quite a lot of backlash for this now. Not from the vast majority of the public, more yeah. so just from a hardcore Jeremy Corbyn backers. And to be honest, there's an argument there. You know, Keir Starmer has previously said that um, local CLPs should be deciding who should be their um, parliamentary candidate. And now he's saying that, you know, this is a diktat, this, uh, this person won't stand. So I don't know if he's going to kick him out of the party completely mm. I don't know if he's going to uh, you know, change the way uh, parliamentary candidates are selected I know there's a lot of can- uh, candidate selections happening at the moment, almost everyone in their left nut wants to be a Labour uh, party parliamentary candidate because they know what's going to happen at the next election um, but then it's also come out, uh, the news agents did another bit with Diane Abbott that Diane Abbott I don't know to what extent you can completely trust everything she says because she does say a lot of things. Not at least uh, her numbers, but... <laughs> yeah, uh, but she did come out and say that Jeremy Corbyn was a Brexiteer, which is sort of an accepted fact, but it's never been sort of spelled out in Specifically. In yeah, which is can interesting.
0: I, yeah, can I wait? I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I, totally, I, I do disagree with you in terms of the, the argument for keeping Jeremy Corbyn within the remit and, you know, like... No, that's not my
1: argument. I'm just saying there is an argument. There is an
0: argument. Well, I I fundamentally disagree with that argument only because I think Labour need to be electable, you know. This is not the time for divisions. And as a party leader, you do have to make difficult decisions. It's all well and nice being totally like, you know, we can, like, be as, you know, transparent as possible and, you know, like... Uh, allow these CLPs to be able to make these decisions but the simple fact is is that Labour have got a job to do right now and that's getting to government It's literally waiting in their hands to do it and mm-hmm. with someone like Jeremy Corbyn I don't think it's a matter of yeah yeah let's kind of think I think he's caused too many issues um, and it's it's right for for Starmer to do that in my opinion.
1: It, I think there should be a degree of control that the leader of a party has mm. over who stands as a parliamentary candidate. Absolutely. I also agree that members should want to have a parliamentary candidate that they like, that they have voted on. So it's going to be interesting. What I find really interesting is that whoever is going to be the Labour candidate in Islington North, because Jeremy Corbyn will inevitably stand as an independent candidate, mm. will receive a lot of abuse and their personal life will be lift, ripped completely apart. And I've spoken to a couple of people that want to be parliamentary candidates uh, in the last sort of 10 or so hours uh, now, and they've said, no, I'm not touching that constituency yeah. uh, in for a very long time. So someone with massive cojones is going to have to go for Islington North. Mm.
0: I think we should but- talk about, I was going to say, I think we should talk about Corbynism as kind of separate, episode and talk about its validity within the uh, Labour Party moving forward, because I think that's a very interesting uh, topic. I think, that's of course, a,
1: I, th- I think that's a hint to another potential guest, James,
0: absolutely. we discussed earlier today.
1: But, but anyway.
0: But, yeah, there is another big piece of news, which was, of course, the resignation of Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. Now, I, I thought this was almost coming because we mentioned it last week. Uh, with regards to the SNP's Gender Reform Act. Uh Nicola Sturgeon, if you're listening, I don't know whether to say we're sorry. I don't I don't think I d- she's don't listening. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but that's of course the the second big piece of news happening today. I mean Carter, I mean,
1: surely that's good news for Labour. It's weird. I think a lot of people have come out and said, oh, this is great news for Labour. You know, this is go- you know, Labour's gonna take Scotland by a lance landslide. I think that's a bit premature. I think we should hold on to our horses a little bit. I don't think Nicola Sturgeon's resignation is suddenly going to lead to the issue of Scottish independence completely going away. I don't think it's going to lead to devolution issues going away. I think there's a lot more coming. Um, And I don't think we can say in confidence that, oh, this is going to be a landslide for Labour. Yeah, Nicola Sturgeon is an, an extremely formidable politician. She was... You know, and, and to be honest, I have a lot of time for Nicola Sturgeon in a lot of ways. And I really, really liked her resignation speech as well. She was talking about, you know, there needs to be more rationality in politics, even from her side. And from what I could see, she was basically saying that my own personal status as a politician in, uh, in Scotland and in the UK has led to there mm-hmm. being more irrationality within these debates, yeah. which is basically that- what she was saying.
0: I think she's a good communicator and uh funny enough if uh, Liz Truss had taken the time to actually talk to her uh, she might have uh, she might have still been in the job whoever you ever noticed but um I think it's difficult because actually labor I think have got to do something quite impressive In order to, because I mean, it's funny. There's this, there's this very interesting poll of people who support SNP, which I mean, for the last few years has obviously like skyrocketed. But people who support independence, it's like I, I want to support the Nationalist Party because they've got our best interest at heart in comparison to Westminster but I don't want to support independence. And that's that really, they're, they're two very conflicted things. And it'd be interesting how Anna Soar, the Scottish Labour leader, who is very mm. likeable, he's been... I have a long a,
1: time for Anna Soar. Yeah,
0: he's been making a lot of friends in uh, in Labour, in, uh, in uh, Scotland in that regard. So it'd be interesting mm. to see how he performs with that, but also who the SNP bring in. Because yeah, I mean they haven't
1: they haven't had any succession planning whatsoever. I think the highest no. person, who I still don't know who the highest person most likely uh, to succeed Nicholas Sturgeon, has only seven percent backing from SNP members. Who
0: is Before, who is that?
1: I have no idea. Oh,
0: oh. Really I shocking. mean, there's the current Westminster. But there are uh, so many people.
1: MP. There are so many people, and don't know is so high. I don't. I don't know if Stephen Flynn is on the list. Yeah, that's what. Um, I, I... And the thing is, Stephen Flynn has been very good in, in Parliament in the last couple of days, uh, in the last couple of months.
0: But, but he's he's been good at criticising the Tories, which I think everybody in the country can be good at. So it's about whether or not he can develop... As you'll see actually, later,
1: I'm, I'm half decent. <laughs>
0: yeah, because I don't actually think that he's got as much gravitas as his predecessor, in Blackford, actually kind of bringing it back to... And this is why hmm. Scotland needs independence away from Westminster. But that's, again, something we can discuss uh, Well, you know, Ian
1: Blackford is out of the job, but I don't know to what extent he's in the mix. I don't think he's in the
0: mix. I don't know if he's in the mix, but I definitely think he's still going to be an influential figure uh, to say the least. Oh, yes, absolutely. but But I think... Kartik, we're ready to go for a break uh, it's a bit, bit of a quick one but we had a very big session earlier with our guests who i'm going to introduce now so after the break you are going to join us for a very special interview that we did with south london conservative mp for Carshalton and wallington Elliot Colburn, the now 30-year-old Conservative MP who was part of the 2019 cohort of uh, Boris Johnson's Get Brexit Done Conservative Manifesto. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, Whether or not it's done or not is uh, is to debate, and we, we did reflect debate on it. it. Um, and uh, he is an openly gay MP. And um, we talk about that in depth and the sort of the positive nature of politics and sort of multi and sort of diversity within politics in the UK who and we also talk about Eules and whether or not what would be the alternative? Is it a good idea? you know, what other things need to be? Who actually uh, proposed to, it? Who proposed it, which Kartik goes, uh, well, I mean, I felt like I was in the middle of a boxing ring at, at some points you'll so uh, it really say, wasn't so, that much, but okay <laughs> there we go. No, I, th- I, think, I think you did I think you did well, Karthik. so uh, so yeah, so uh, join us after the break. Um, as we see, conservative versus labor on politics and draft. See you after the break. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Politics on Draft. I'm. We are here for well, my first on location interview. Kartik's still online, but we're with um, Elliot Colburn, MP, Conservative MP of Cawston and Wallington. Uh, Elliot, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad to be doing this. Yeah. No. Um, it's and also I think. It's nice that we can at least partially do this in person because, I mean, all the interviews we've done before have been online and there's always some sort of technical difficulty. But uh, we think that Zoom and all those stuff would get better in the three years that we've just been reliant on it. You would have um, hoped
2: so, but, but sadly
0: not. But sadly not. Um, we always start the beginning of this section by saying, you know, what are you drinking? I mean, we usually drink alcohol because we record this in the evening. It's two o'clock and it's yeah, a um, no. very busy schedule. So Yeah, so I am
2: having a cup of tea because it's two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. If we were doing it in the evening, you might catch me with a beer in hand um, uh, or a gin and tonic. Yeah. Um, but, what, uh, what beer
1: would you usually go for, Elliot?
2: Oh, you know what? I'm really not precious. Um, whatever is on special at Sainsbury's that day, <laughs> I'll be there. Um, you know, I'm really not precious when it comes to it. So, uh, but yeah, two o'clock in the afternoon. I think it might be a bit early for me to start. So, cup of tea. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a
1: recess, so, you know. Well, that's uh, one of the... I wouldn't mind. <laughs>
2: you know? Apparently we don't do any work during recess, yes. all we do is sit around and, drink and go on holiday, so yeah, yes. that's apparently all we do, so yeah. Yeah,
0: I've actually been very busy today.
1: Very busy. Yeah, no, absolutely not true. I'm in the yeah. same position, I've got a lot of work um, for my MP as well, but yeah. should we get into it? Absolutely,
0: absolutely. So we'll, we'll start with the first question, and uh, I, I, this is going to sound very, very basic, but um, can you tell us what it's actually like to be an MP? Um, because, you know, you were elected in 2019. Mm. Um, obviously, COVID and a lot has happened. And I think a lot of it, people listening would be very interested to kind of just I don't know, talk about your experience of day-to-day life as a it, Member of
1: Parliament.
2: Yeah. I mean the Funny thing about this question, I reckon you'd get 650 different answers if you asked every MP, Um, Mm. because I think it really is what you make of it. We're not given an instruction manual when we start this job. You turn up on the first day, you get given a laptop, you get given your pass, and you're basically told, good luck, we'll see you at the next election. (laughs) Um, And you're then there, left, trying to work things out. This is maybe a bit unfair. The house staff are really good at giving you quite a lot of support on some of the admin. But the job doesn't come with a job description. So you are doing what you want to do. I didn't expect, obviously, a lot of the stuff that we have had to deal with over the last few years when I first took on the job. I had no idea that a pandemic was coming down the line. War would come back to Europe. We'd be in the midst of a cost of living crisis, for example. So in many ways, the job isn't what I expected, mm. but there is a lot that I fully expected as well. Um, the trolling, the day-to-day nonsense that MPs are subjected to. I already knew what mm. I was getting myself of in for before of that. Um, but the job is one thing that I think has shocked me is how rewarding this job can be and how good it can make you feel on a day to day basis. Because there's so much that goes on that, you know, the general public don't normally see us getting up to. Mm. The big thing that people associate us with is shouting at PMQs. Um, which, you know, is actually about 20 minutes a week of what we yeah, do. Yeah, um, there's so much more that we do. And the bit I find the most rewarding is the the casework element of the role. You know, we are there to help people when they come to their MP looking for support. And we've over the last few years, my team and I have dealt with all sorts of things from what you might view as relatively simple, like getting a street lamp fixed by replacing the bulb to something like trying to get people who work for the British government in Afghanistan over to the UK before the Taliban took over Kabul. Um, Mm. All sorts of things and everything in between. So it is what I expected. It's not in some areas, but the thing I think I've really taken away is just how rewarding it can feel from time to time. So that's what I love about it.
0: Yeah, and if you don't mind me saying, Mm. because it sounds as if, I mean, you said that no... MP will probably give the same answer Mm. as you. And obviously, you know, you spoke about the pandemic and sort of the other turbulent issues. Mm. I guess the kind of the angle that I'm going in is, Mm. is the turbulence, in a sense, rewarding that, you know, you don't know what you're about to come up against. And Mm. you can kind of come at that sort of on face value and think, well, how do we fix said issue, whether it be, you know, like pandemic Mm. Uh, cost-living crisis etc yeah definitely I mean politics
2: is intrinsically a problem-solving job um, mm. whether you are in a period of what you might call relative calm or you're in a period like the last well I wouldn't even say three years I mean the last parliament wasn't exactly quiet either even though mm. it wasn't there um, so you know we have had a period of the UK up against some really big challenges and I think that has been exacerbated in MPs ability to solve problems so Mm. and so it is actually a very demanding role in that sense but also you are gaining a lot of skills that I don't think necessarily you were assuming that you'd make you know there's the assumption that you know you go through you make legislation you get to the next election and you make an assessment on whether or not you've done the right thing but I think that sort of traditional view of how British politics works has completely gone out the window over the last five years or so because of how much we have been faced with and I really really feel blessed to have been witnessed Mm. part of that, it's not Mm. been easy, it's been tough but I do feel like I'm incredibly lucky to get to witness some Mm. of that from the inside
1: I I wanted to ask you a question and and this possibly leads Mm. on to our next question as well And, and this isn't on the brief James but I promise it's not a mean one. What would you yeah. say your toughest moment as an MP has been?
2: Oh, easy. It was the first, I'd say, two months of the pandemic by far mm. um, was the hardest um, because everyone was in the same boat. We were all facing something new and we were essentially attempting to help people from from that first day. So if I give you a bit of an example, I've worked in MPs' offices before and I've had periods of what you might call relatively relative calm as an mp as well mm. that first couple of months of the pandemic was so so difficult because we were getting hundreds if not thousands of emails and calls every single day mm. my team and I were absolutely overwhelmed with correspondence with people asking questions you know what does this mean for me where can I go to access support and of course we didn't know any more than the general population did at this point because all these support schemes were being developed at the same time so we could only pass on information as we became aware of it and I think on an average week I would have something I'd have a few hundred I think bits of correspondence from a, from constituents this was on a level that I've never experienced before, either as a parliamentary staffer or as an or, or as an MP. So my team and I were essentially working from, essentially, seven eight o'clock in the morning, three to eight nine o'clock at night every single day for about two months to try and get through the sheer volume. Yeah. That was really tough, um, and it was really upsetting because people were really worried and anxious. And, of course, that didn't go away after the first few months because the pandemic lasted a lot longer than that. But those first few months of essentially trying to navigate and understand what was happening and what the response would be like, by far the hardest.
0: Yeah, I suppose mentally that's got to be quite straining. I mean, like, as, a, as an MP and your, your staff, obviously, you know, you're used to dealing with quite sensitive matters, but mm. just the sheer uncertainty of everything that mm. was sort of unraveling before your eyes. That's got to be quite difficult. Yeah, I mean
2: there's loads of difficult moments in the job. You know, you have you you have votes that sometimes you have to wrestle with your conscience mm. about. Um, you have obviously tons of trolling and horrible bits of correspondence. Mm. Every MP has that sadly. Um, but all of that is I think expected. This was something that none of us saw coming when we first took up our seats in 2019. And to suddenly be presented with that, I think was a real challenge. So I'd easily by far over the last three years, that has been the hardest thing.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. I'll move on to the next question. So, I mean, I think Karthik was about to shed light on it and I, I can see where he was segueing into it, but, um, so you're a very proud gay MP, which is <laughs> brilliant. And, uh, and I think, The question we were going to ask you is how has that been as an experience? I mean, you talked about trolling and uh, I know that in 2021, you unfortunately received a death threat Mm. um, with regards to it. And that's obviously got to be very tricky. So how has your experience been of of being a gay man in this very kind of, you Mm. know, difficult job where you have so much exposure? Yeah it was I mean it's it's never
2: nice to receive threats or trolling messages and things like that or any kind of abuse um it is sadly i think that something that you've had to come to expect now as a politician mm. of all colours um it doesn't mean that it's right but sadly i think it's something that you just have to accept that you are going to you are going to get in some way shape or form i think the real worry is not so much for yourself because you sort of willingly put yourself in that position by running yeah. for election and being a public figure but it's the it's your loved ones it's your family
1: okay.
2: um it's the people that didn't ask to be in the spotlight essentially who i think feel more worried I think than you do I mean to give you an example my mum has completely come off social media now because she just cannot wow. stand seeing stuff that yeah. that comes up and I said to her, well you know just don't don't follow me. You know, don't yeah. follow, don't don't look at any of my stuff. You know, I'll fill you in with what I'm doing and if you really want to know. Most their mums to do that anyway. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she completely came off social media because of it. And um, but you know, I've actually found the experience of being an openly gay MP to be a relatively positive one. You know, oh. I've that that experience that death threat is actually an outlier. It's not it's not common at all. Yeah. I very rarely get. Um, hate or abuse focused on my sexuality at all. Parliament is a very welcoming place. In fact, the UK Parliament, until very recently, had the... Highest proportion of gay MPs, it was nicknamed the gayest Parliament in the world. Um, (laughs) um, Sadly, New Zealand took over from us. But you know, knowing knowing British politics as I do, I think that it won't be too long before we get that
0: title back. Because I was going to ask you, what what do you think has been politics' sort of greatest moments in trying to become a more open Mm. uh, sort of establishment with regards to um, sort of sexuality? I am assuming that probably would have been, I think.
2: Yeah, I think most of the things that made Parliament more accepting and politics more accepting um, of gay people in particular, I think probably happened before I arrived, to be honest. So things like equal equal marriage legislation, um, equality um, in the age of consent, for example, uh, the Equality Act itself to um, to create a protected characteristic, Mm -hmm. um, and just changing the working practices and the environment. I think a lot of that happened before I arrived. Um, so it was it was a very welcoming environment from the from day one, really, yeah. for me. So I've uh, I've been very lucky in that mm. regard.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant,
1: Casting. Have you got anything more on that question? Not on that. I wanted to move on to policy-based and party-based issues. Okay, mm. with you. So sure. I know this is before your time because you were elected in 2019, mm. and it's also sort of not before your time because you were elected on the Conservative Party manifesto. So Brexit, yeah. I'm not going to ask your personal perspective. You don't have to give it, although it would be <laughs> it. But do you think your party's been damaged by Brexit or do you think your party has been has benefited from Brexit? Do you think if it has been damaged, do you think it's been healed? At the
2: Blimey, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> it's, it's a, so, um, so to give it maybe a bit of context, this might help with explaining my sort of position on these things. So I was... Very, very undecided when it came to the referendum oh. on whether to remain or leave the EU. I never had a particularly strong opinion either either way. I thought the EU had some really massive faults. I saw that there were also certain benefits.
1: Just like so Jeremy that- Corbyn.
2: Yeah, although I think
1: I, I think I was, <laughs> yeah.
2: Although I don't think I would have done a Jeremy Corbyn and then decided to go into an election campaign campaigning <laughs> against my own deal. But there we go.
1: Um,
2: but anyway, yeah. So and I was quite loyal to David Cameron at the time uh, as mm-hmm. well. I, I I quite liked David Cameron. I thought he had. Uh, Um, he'd done a lot of good work to make the Conservative Party electable again. And I think a lot of people forget because they look at the 2019 result and look how amazing that was. David Cameron actually had a much bigger set of um, swing, uh, a much bigger swing and a much bigger number of seats come back over to us. So he deserves a lot of credit, in my opinion. But I was very, very concerned about elements of the european union particularly the democratic deficit that i felt that there was there the um the inability to uh particularly on immigration to um uh, to go further in that in terms of to make the system fairer um, so I had a lot that was playing on my mind. Eventually, I decided to vote to leave the European Union, but I mm-hmm. didn't join the Leave campaign. I, and I mm-hmm. didn't campaign at all. I voted, I put my cross there, but that was all I did. Mm-hmm. Then the result of the referendum came out and I was very much of the opinion that regardless of personal feelings, you have to respect the outcome of referendums because I think the the damage that you would have done to British politics, the Constitution, which of course is uncodified, so it's already very precarious, Um, and trust in politics, which has been historically very low in the UK, I think would have just been huge. So I felt like it was absolutely necessary to deliver on that result for, for, if, if no other reason, than simply respecting the outcome of referendums. Now, obviously, there was arguments about oh, it was advisory and all the rest of that. Look, In reality, you've got to just face reality here and face facts that it, to the average person in the street, that was a vote. And what they saw was um, politicians unable to deliver on the result of a vote, essentially. So re- we, regardless of all those arguments, most people who don't think about politics all day, every day, like we maybe do, mm. didn't see it that way. In terms of what's happened since, um, there's been no doubt that some things have been challenging, particularly with the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, for example. I think, um, I I still think it is absolutely right, though, to try and make Brexit work to um, to the best of our ability. I do think there are massive benefits that come with it. I do think that the legislation we've been able to pass, for example, around securing Uh, the border and introduce a points-based immigration system have been positive from my perspective. Other people would disagree with that, obviously, but I think it makes the system fairer because it's based on talent and not place. Um, Also, we've been able to go further than the EU in certain environmental standards as well, despite a lot of scaremongering that we might slip backwards. But there's no doubt there's been challenges. And I think anyone who was kidding themselves that it was going to be easy were doing just that that you know it was never going to be straightforward there wasn't a panacea that you could have taken to make the whole process go off without a hitch I, doing something like that is massive and it's going to take a long time um but I do think there are massive benefits for the UK You benefits that we are already seeing and benefits that are left to come but there's no doubt that it will be a it will be a Growing process of continuing to have constructive negotiations with our European partners um, in order to get to a point where we think you know what everything's going okay, um, and I think the biggest example of that is the Northern Ireland uh, border at the moment. Um, There's a really long answer to your question, which probably amounts to <laughs> it probably amounts to a, a politician's answer of just saying I don't really know, but um, uh, I- but. That does give you some context. That's where I was coming from.
1: I I just have one sort of follow-up question. You said that Mm. anyone who thought it was going to be easy was kidding Mm. themselves. Mm. Boris Johnson did say it was easy. He said the deal was oven-ready.
2: Well, I mean, in all fairness to him and, you know, my my position on Boris's premiership is already public knowledge, so I won't go into any more detail there. Um, (laughs) But uh, in all fairness to him, though, you know, he had he did renegotiate a deal and it did get voted through. I mean, the parliamentary deadlock was broken, which was the major which was the major issue. Um, I think where there was. I think perhaps a lack of understanding was around the continuous nature of Brexit um, was that it was going to be I think an ever-evolving process and not something to tick off a to-do list. I think that's probably where as a as a country maybe and I think the European Union were equally, equally guilty of this because I think the EU saw the deal as the end essentially rather than the beginning of a new chapter and of the building of a new relationship um and I, so i think the eu were probably just as guilty as were just as guilty of this um but you know we are we are now along t- we the world has evolved so much since that election and since th- that was my first vote was going through the lobbies to vote in favour of the deal and therefore end the parliamentary deadlock and if i think of how much has happened since then yeah we a lot has a lot has changed and a lot mm. has moved on so uh Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not a straightforward process by any stretch of the imagination, but it's one that I still think is, is right that British, that the British government does commit to and continue to do its best to make work for the British people. Um, because I think it would massively undermine trust in politics if you didn't, um, in, in my view, but others, others have a very different view.
0: I, I suppose the good, the good thing now is, you know, like, and we're going to talk about twenty twenty four. You know, mm. we're coming up to sort of mm. election season, and it sounds as if both sides of the uh, dispatch box are going mm. to kind of lay out how they want Brexit to look like going forward. Yeah, and it's then up for the you know public to decide what they want Brexit to look like, I Yeah, suppose. and
2: I would be very shocked if Brexit is a massive feature of the next election. Mm, I mean, it was the I only agree. feature of the last one,
1: essentially, mm.
2: one of the only features. As though there were some others. But Brexit was obviously the main major feature of 2019. But there's not to say that there aren't issues related to Brexit that will come up. Um, and the big of course, one, of course, of course, will be immigration, as we, as we know, as there's a massive debate going on in the country at the moment about that. But I don't think i don't think many voters will go into the next election making up their minds on brexit it's specifically mm. on brexit um and you know whether or not they want to rejoin whether or not they want some some sort of different deal or arrangement or anything like that i think for for the overwhelming majority of voters and we see this reflected in public polling as well those issues have very much moved on for them and we're now seeing by far, the top two slash three issues for voters are the cost of living, the NHS, and immigration to a mm. certain extent as well. Um, now, that's not to say that Brexit mm. can't be linked to any of that, but I don't think in there. I think I don't think for most voters that will be their major thing.
1: Interesting. That, that is interesting. I I have some contentions, but we'll, we we don't have to come on to that because I have a few more questions. So. Sure. During his first speech as Mm. Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak Mm. pledged to lead a government with integrity, professionalism Mm. and accountability at every level. Mm. Approximately 100 days after that, Mm. do you think Rishi Sunak, as Prime Minister, Mm. has led a government with integrity, professionalism and accountability?
2: I do, yes. I mean, that's not to say there hasn't been... um hasn't been concerns along the way um i mean ov- obviously the thing that a lot of people point to is nazim Suwahi, for, for example in his his tax affairs but what i do think uh, what i what i will say for rishi on on that is that he did immediately appoint someone to look into it and allowed due process to be followed and then took action. It, this wasn't one of those typical things that sometimes happens in government where you invite someone to come and sit down with you in number 10 and invite them to hand in their resignation. Um, and in all fairness to him, he did also follow the process that the opposition were calling for. Um, and I think that was absolutely right. It's frustrating because sometimes when when revelations come out or accusations come out I think in a social media age that we live in at the moment we're very much of the opinion that immediate action must be taken um and it's I think there's been a sort of lack of importance placed in due process but I think it was right to allow due process to be followed and then action came as a result um on that specific case but I do feel um as if that we we've heard the phrase steady the ship quite a lot in relation to Rishi's Premiership um, in his first hundred days, uh, and I do feel as if he's achieved that. From uh, as someone who's on the inside and who has experienced the final days of Boris's premiership, and I don't think you could really call it the final days of Liz's because I don't. It doesn't really wasn't really long enough yeah. to have <laughs> final days. They were um, all final days. They were ba- yeah. they basically were. Um, but you know, as someone who was on the inside during that, it certainly feels much calmer, much more steady, um, and much more dutiful than I think it has before. So the very short answer to your question is yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, just before Carter comes in, I actually, I mean, I came to your office, Mm. uh, on the day that Rishi, you know, was declared. I Mm. think it was when Penny basically said, no, she's not going to Mm. contest it. And, uh, by de facto, he was, Mm. he was going to become prime minister. And, Mm there did seem to me to be like a sort of very positive attitude in uh, sort of, especially in Port Carlos house. Mm. Um, and I know obviously you already said that the, the atmosphere in Westminster is a very positive atmosphere anyway, but yeah. um, it, it, it just did seem like, you know, today is going to be sort of a better day than what we've been going through in the last 40 yeah. years. And I know that obviously coincided with a lot of stuff to do with the Queen and, you know, like yeah,
2: the, yeah there was a lot yeah. that there was a lot that had happened i mean obviously I was a penny Morden supporter both over the summer and and next yeah. time rounds yeah. so, and and when Rishi went for it the second time but you know i have absolutely I had absolutely no problem with Rishi becoming um prime minister because he is in my view incredibly competent. Um and I think his, you know, his his record during the pandemic in setting up the support schemes, but also his record in his first hundred days in steadying that economic ship, along with the rest of the cabinet as well, I've been really reassured by um so you know, even though we do back we do back our own horse in the races mm-hmm. as it were, um when Penny decided that she wasn't going to put her name forward, you know, it certainly wasn't um a big Devastating mm. moment for me. Um, in so far as I thought, oh God, this is all over. This is terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, I was perfectly happy with it, um, and uh, you know, Penny's still in government, so I'm very happy with that yeah. so But uh, so, yeah. do you want to
0: weigh in on.
1: I that? I, I wanted or to weigh on, yeah. in on one thing. Um, mm. It's again as a Labour member, it's <laughs> it, I find it interesting that mm. the investigation, and I and, and I acknowledge that there was due process. Mm. The investigation only took one week. And if, and if an investigation's taking one week, mm. I don't think that there was previously that much there to investigate. We've known about Nadim Zahavi's tax affairs since the summer of last year when he put himself up for leadership. We, we've known about what Lee Anderson is like before he was elected. We knew about Dominic Rav, the numerous NDAs he's signed, the numerous challenges to his conduct in public office. Yet these things are still happening, so I acknowledge that there's a due process and that's a valid argument. But I still find it hard to believe that there's been integrity, professionalism, and accountability when I still see these at the moment. These three things in front of me.
2: Well, I think that I think particularly with your your point saying we knew is that okay? Well, how how did we know? It's because the media has reported. These things and, and put them in the public domain. It's not for a prime minister to make a decision on appointments based on media reports. Mm. Now they may well be accurate. Sometimes they're not. In fact, um, that was one of the things that has shocked me being an MP because I've seen stories about me, for example, that have appeared mm. in in the press that have been that have been totally false. So I mean, one of the ones was that I was uh, I've twice been reported that I was on the verge of defecting to Labour. Um, which, if they knew my constituency at all, knew <laughs> that why why I would I would not do that. Um, but also, but there was absolutely mm. no truth in the matter whatsoever. So it did actually shock me that you know this perception that the media makes things up. Oh, I thought, oh, that must be exaggerated. No, it's genuinely true. Sometimes mm. things do appear that are just nonsense. But I what I but I think that's what is so important is that you do know you do need to allow due process to to take forward. And Dom is another example. You know, we've heard things in the media about he stared at me harshly or he told me that to go and do this piece of work again and things like that. It's like, well, that isn't really strong enough to force the PM to decide to sack him without a full and due process followed Mm. investigation to get to the bottom of... What has actually happened? Um, establish the facts independently, and then make a decision. Um, uh, in, in my view, and, and it is frustrating because in this day and age, with social media and all the rest of it, I think we do demand instant reaction. We demand instant replies, <laughs> and you know we demand instant uh, everything because we're so used to having it all at the uh, at the end of our fingertips. But I do think it is still important to allow due process to to be followed.
0: Absolutely. Um... I was going to say, because I know there was a question I was going to ask about uh, 2024, which I suppose we can kind of go maybe at the end if we've got time, but I know that you wanted to talk about you, Les. Mm. I uh, did. Carting, and I think that probably takes greater precedent. Um, my favourite subject at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> at yeah. the moment,
1: I, I would say it's my favourite subject as well. <laughs>
0: yeah, so, uh, so I'll let you take the, the reins of that,
1: Carter. Mm. Elliot, I have printed something out, and it's this it's a letter from the Transport Secretary to Sadiq Khan in May of 2020, the height mm. of the pandemic, if you like. Mm. And it's basically an extraordinary extraordinary funding and financing package, mm. which um, comprises £1.6 billion. Mm. And if you go to page three of that mm. document, it goes to service levels. And on this service levels, um, they mention that there should be a temporary suspension of free travel for the Freedom Pass and 60-plus cardholders during peak and the suspension of free travel for under-18s. But what I find the most interesting thing is that the immediate reintroduction of the London congestion charge, Les and UNES, urgently bring forward and urgently bring forward proposals to widen the scope and levels of these charges in accordance with the re- relevant legal powers. So mm. I, I agree with the four Labour MPs that came out against Mm. ULEZ in the last couple of days, two of them being shadow cabinet members. Mm. And I agree with elements of Mm. the Conservative Party campaign against ULES. But this document tells me, which I got from the DFD website, Mm. that the government encouraged Sadiq Khan to expand ULES
2: it's one of my i'm so glad you brought it up because it's one of my favorite things at the moment because uh labor are currently scrabbling around in london uh, and out of london and just outside of london as well uh, because they are hemorrhaging support on ulez and the one thing that labor parties are attempting to do locally is try and say oh well no 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 um, the mayor didn't want to do this despite the fact that the mayor has been all over media outlets saying how wonderful you, Les, is. And he's not He's not used this line. This is the thing that is very telling to me. He, the mayor himself has not used this line at all. He is saying that this is his policy, that he's in favour of doing it, and everyone who's against it clearly wants people to die of dirty air. And that that letter gets wheeled out by local Labour Party members who are attempting to save face over it. But in truth, all that letter is is a list of things that the mayor and TfL agreed to do in in return for funding. It was their own assessment. And if so, this was what TfL said that they were going to do. It had nothing to do with government instruction. Government didn't and can't issue instruction um, for TfL or the mayor to look at money raising revenues in any direction. And the big thing, I think the big telling thing for me here is that the reason why this argument that, oh, it it was forced, just doesn't have any weight whatsoever, is because the mayor himself has in the past said, oh, um, this is a genuine consultation. There's now questions about whether or not it was, but we'll come back to that. But he said, oh, this is a genuine consultation. And if Londoners don't want it, then it won't happen. Well, he can't make that promise then. If this is being forced on him, he can't make a promise that there's an avenue for it to not happen, if you see what I mean. He can't go out and say that this is a decision. It's not foregone. It could go either way. If it was mandated, he wouldn't be able to make the promise that it could go either way. And as I say, the biggest telling sign at the moment, I think that it's just not the case that he was mandated to do this, is the fact that he is not using that argument himself at all he's all over the media and the new ULES adverts saying how good of a policy this is. And he's so proud of it because in his view, it's going to save all these people from dying from air pollution, even though the evidence basically doesn't exist. Um, And everyone who opposes it is obviously in the pockets of, I don't know, big car owners or, or in in the pockets of killing children or whatever it is that he said in the London assembly. Um, So, um, I appreciate where you're coming from. But the, you know, the government's been absolutely clear that during those negotiations, it was for TfL to come up with the suggestions on what they would do to raise money um, and tell them what they would do. And that's what that letter shows is what TfL were suggesting they would do.
1: But this this document says that the government will give money if the TfL agrees to these service levels.
2: But Yeah, but the service levels were set by... Yeah, but the service levels were set by TfL. So that's what they said, yeah.
1: I accept your argument that Sadiq Mm. Khan has Mm. been out there, and he hasn't been making this argument, but there have also been shadow cabinet Labour members, Mm. Labour MPs, that have Mm. gone out there and said, Sadiq, just delay this. It's not a good idea to do this now. Delay Mm. this, delay this, delay this.
2: And... I mean, I'm not sure delaying is good enough, in my opinion, because... You know, the whole argument around Ulez is um the expanding ULES, the big central part of the mayor's cons around ULES expansion is all to do with air quality. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's not it's not about, in his view, revenue raising, even though for many people they view it as such. It's all about air quality, in his opinion. And the 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 problem that I have with it is that one, the evidence that it's gonna have a positive impact on air quality isn't there in his own integrated impact assessment, it says it won't make a difference. But on top of that, I'm not sure that punishing the poorest Londoners with a £12.50 a day charge is the right way to go about it. So yeah, there has been talks, like the Lib- this is the Lib Dem line as well, that you know we do support ULS expansion, but why don't we push it back a couple of years and put more money into a scrappage scheme instead? Um, to, to me, the, the aim... Which is being said by the mayor, which is cleaning up air quality. It just seems like a very odd policy decision when there are so many other things I think he could look at which would improve air quality in London rather than a tax essentially on the oldest cars.
1: And what would you say those things are that he should do? So
2: so there's several of them. Um, So the budget for ULES expansion is in the region of four to five hundred million. Now, mm-hmm. that that sheer volume of money can do a number of things. I would look at electrifying the bus fleet in London, for example, and go mm-hmm. and moving to net zero public transport as fast mm-hmm. as possible.
1: Mm.
2: Um, I would look at expanding the scrappage scheme, but I'd also look back and look at bringing back another scrappage scheme, um, which was uh, which is been got rid of by this mayor, which was a scrappage scheme for boilers. And that scrappage scheme allowed people to apply for funding to get rid of old gas boilers and instead introduce new Mm -hmm. things such as geothermal energy and heat pumps in their own homes. So I would bring back something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also so much you can do in terms of uh, the built environment in London, in terms of the energy efficiency of buildings, uh, Mm -hmm. solar panels, um, small wind turbines, tree planting etc there's like, there are so many things that have been you know proven over the years to make a really good impact on air quality and to pin all of our hopes and dreams on ulez to clean up london's air when his own report says it's unlikely to have much of an impact <laughs> Just seems to just seems to be a bit of a misnomer. So I, I would go back and revisit one of those or several of those many things mm-hmm. um, that you could do instead mm-hmm. um, of ULEZ. That's not to say that you know older vehicles shouldn't come off the road, but I don't think that transition is going to be helped by essentially pricing people out of them. I think instead doing things like this
0: um, would
2: make it much easier for that transition Mm. to happen.
0: If I can weigh in, Carter, and I'm aware Mm -hmm. of the time, and, you know, like, I don't know, that's that's limited. Um, In a weird way, I'm kind of almost going to do a almost like post-Ules kind of argument here. And that Mm. is, uh, like, I, for me, I'm actually, and not to completely sort of disrespect Ules as a topic, Mm. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I almost wish it wasn't. In the sense that i think there are so many things mm. that in my mind give greater precedence mm. in terms of the, the the jobs that should be being done by the mayoral assembly i mean like mm. i mean if we cast on my back to 2021 which was when um when he was re-elected back in mm. you know I, I voted in that i was um as part of the uh, east london um area and mm. obviously something that we face a very very big problem is i mean like for instance knife crime mm. that's mm. you know absolutely massive in east uh, london i'm not sure mm. uh, how big of an issue it is in uh car shorts and in sutton per se but mm. you know w- when you're hearing like you know as someone who you know literally has, has seen you know police tape after police taped area mm. in east london mm. hearing the debate about whether or not there should be additional congestion and, and ulex mm. charges rather than kind of okay what i mean you said like 400 million for example yeah i don't know the figures uh, at all but like i'd like to know what is money is going into say things like knife crime because yeah. in my mind that's james can i yeah. jump in yeah yeah yeah
1: elliot i'm really sorry really sorry if i'm interrupting you but that's all right and and the thing is i'm not accusing Elliot of this because he's completely mm. outlined what he would rather do instead mm. But I am accusing you, James. <laughs> okay. <Don't worry>. yeah. <laughs> um, the thing is, I have asthma, and yeah. I know for a fact that about 4,000 people die mm. due to air pollution. And yeah. you, you're, you're challenging that you, Les, doesn't deal with air pollution. And, and mm. if, if, if that's your challenge, then that's your challenge. But, and it also costs the NHS £10 billion mm. every year. So Absolutely. I think yeah. it's definitely a problem that we need to deal with. The question is the method. And you're right, knife crime and things like that are a major issue as well.
2: I agree with you, you, Kartik. that the, um, and this is the thing, I don't think, which is why I've been slightly baffled by just how, I think, almost hysterical the mayor has become. I mean, he has been, he's always been quite rude, but some of the chat, some of his reactions to being challenged on Les expansion have been unbelievably rude and unbecoming of a politician um, in the UK. I really don't, and I I really find it quite, um, quite disheartening to see because, you know, he should be up for being challenged on his decisions rather than just saying, Oh my God, everyone hates children and they want them all to die of air quality. I mean, that's just nonsense. I haven't heard a single person say there's one, not an air quality problem or two, there aren't things that we Mm. should do. But, you know, you do raise a good point though, James, I think about, the mayor of London, as a as a role, and the London Assembly as well. There's currently a petition which is, um, I think, hit over thirty thousand signatures on the parliamentary petitions website. I'm aware of it because I sit on the petitions committee mm. in Parliament, which is calling for um, the London Assembly and the mayor to be completely scrapped. Get rid of it as a de- as a form wow. of devolution. Uh, and as I represent an outer London constituency right on the Surrey border, you know, many of my constituents, I think, do feel slightly more disconnected to London as a geographical location than you would in some of the more inner London zones. Of course, yeah. And I think the one of the things we have to remember is that the mayor of London, by UK standards, is actually a very powerful role he has a lot of direct decision making mm. power he has a budget of over 20 billion pounds which is more i think than even some ministers in government have control over um you know we are talking about huge sums of money and huge sums of power in the capital city of our country. And I think a lot of Londoners do sometimes ask the question, you know, what are what am I getting for this? What is the benefit of having this mm. role? What are, What is the mayor and what is the London Assembly doing for me? And I think it's very hard to justify the devolution settlement um, when you do see knife crime at the levels mm. that they are. And yet a mayor who is just talking about a congestion charging scheme, which is on dodgy ground, evidence wise. Um, Now, how you go about how you go about fixing that really comes down to politics, in my opinion, I think it's for politicians to make, you know, to make the case for devolution and to make the case for for having the London Assembly or the mayor. Um, But it's it can be difficult. And so I, I do agree with you that it's a struggle to for many Londoners to weigh up these different Mm, facets mm. but you know there is absolutely no doubt that London does have an air quality problem I mean you can taste it sometimes in the air just how bad it is and and it is costing the NHS a lot of money but I just I really feel um that there are so many tangible things that we can do that would make a bigger net benefit and a bigger change to pollution levels in London um that would be a much better use of that money and of the mayor's 20 billion pound budget um mm-hmm. than a congestion than, a, than expanding you um mm. i just there's so many things that i think we should be looking at instead sure.
1: it's interesting that you mentioned knife crime because mm. and then you mentioned devolution to the next because i would sum up knife crime as mm. a, a larger issue of austerity youth services being cut etc um and we can as you said, we can talk for ages and ages and ages and ages about London knife crime, communities mm-hmm. and stuff like that. In terms of ULES, I mean, I've, I've seen the figures, and obviously, we're not going to come to an agreement on ULES. But mm. I think, in the long run, it might be a good idea to have these non-compliant vehicles off the road, as you've suggested. And but you just think it's it, it requires a different solution. Um, am I correct in saying mm. that?
2: Yeah, I just I think that the approach to getting there needs to be different. I mean, obviously, the government has already legislated to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. Yeah. Um. So there's, there's already, there's already a lot going on nationally to, um, to, to push towards this. I just think that when, when you're attempting to reach net zero, which is something that I'm, I'm particularly passionate about, I'm, i think we've seen in the aftermath of the ukraine war just how precarious global energy supplies can be so i'm i'm really quite interested in this policy area um i just think if you're on that road to net zero you need to find ways to take people with you and mm-hmm. i just think punitive ascent to what are taxes essentially um are, are, not the, are not the way to do it. I, th- I think investing in greener public transport, I think looking at the built environment and how you can move towards energy efficiency and better sustainability, mm-hmm. looking at um, the local environment are all different things that you can do, which I just think would be much better.
1: Yeah. So really quickly, would you then agree with the idea that all of the money that's raised by you, Les, goes back into public transport? Because that's what we I mean- are doing.
2: I mean, well, they say they say they're doing it, but they said the same thing about the inner London ULES, and they're cutting central London bus routes. So, uh, the the uh, yes, I mean, any, any money that was to be raised from it, despite the fact that ULES itself is going to be a very expensive thing to implement, all the camera networks, and then the admin and all the rest of it. Um, any money that was raised should of course improve the um improve the public transport offer but I just think people have no faith that that will happen because they said the same mm-hmm. thing about the inner London ultra low emission zone and they're actually going backwards on the number
0: of bus routes on offer so mm. um that's where okay. we are with it yeah I'd be for that and and listeners will know my just Absolute hatred of you hate
1: the district AP. line because
0: yes. <laughs> oh, there's <laughs> so <laughs> many. You really hate the Me getting home, uh, I will <laughs> say way. as a
2: South London MP, at least you have the at least you have a tube line there. We don't yes, have anything of here.
0: Course, <laughs> of
1: <course>. um, <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. uh, uh, I live in Bromley, so I've got nothing. It's yeah, really um, really bad for me to get into Parliament. exactly yeah Yeah. well yeah i
0: mean it's been absolutely amazing having you on the uh on the podcast we always finish with the last question that we try and ask everybody and we you know i think it'd be very interesting to hear your response to this Mm. um a lot of our listeners are quite young of the kind of 18 to 25 Mm. uh, demographic what would you say your message to them is if you could sum that up all in one, which I know is obviously quite difficult oh that's very difficult,
2: but yeah i'd say very, very briefly that politics is relevant to you, even if you don 't feel like it is um politics does affect every single facet of our lives in ways that i don't think is always obvious mm-hmm. um, but as one of the relatively younger m p s in parliament, i was twenty seven when I got elected, and i 'm only thirty now. I would seriously encourage people to get involved in frontline politics in some way and consider running for office. If they truly believe in something, then do something about it. You know, you can put your name forward and you can try and do something about it. And it can seem daunting at times. And there will no doubt be people that try and put you off. Um, But we need younger, more diverse voices if we are to truly understand the needs of our Local populations of our national population. So my big message is please, please, please put mm. yourself forward. If you believe in something, then demonstrate it.
0: Brilliant. And I think that goes, I think that sort of crosses all political divisions, actually. So mm. that's probably a brilliant way to win. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next Friday from ATM. And I think that all that's left for me to say is... I've been James.
1: I've been Kartik. Thank you to Elliot as well.
0: Thank, Thank you to you. Elliot. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week on Politics and Draft. See you later. Bye bye. Okay.